Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Mark Schleifer. I'm the Regional Director for Europe, Eurasia, and South Asia at SIPE, the Center for International Private Enterprise. It is uh, our unenviable task, I guess, to go right after lunch as, as folks are, have, are full uh, and, and content. But um, I think that we'll put on a good panel for you here to keep the conversation going. And, and um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll uh, have enough stimulating discussion that folks won't, won't take a post-lunch uh, snooze. Um, so let me, uh, first of all, thank the Atlanta Council for uh, organizing and uh, hosting today's event. And let me also thank our co-organizers, uh, IRI, RFERL, um, and also a thank you to, to NDI as well, who's taking part. Um, and let me also, of course, thank uh, SIPES funders at the National Endowment for Democracy, who make uh, so much of the work possible that NDI, IRI, and, and we at SIPES do as well. Um, our panel uh, is going to be picking up a lot of the themes that I, I think were opened in the, in the first two sessions. Um, we, we touched a little bit on some of the economic dimensions of the illiberal turn in Central and Eastern Europe, and it is our, our panel's task to dive a little more deeply into, into all those issues that were touched on. So let me start by introducing my panelists, and, and we'll get right into it. Uh, moving down the line from the far left, we have Mr. Andras Loke, who is the president of the Board of Transparency International in Hungary and is also the uh, founder of a number of businesses in the online media space in Hungary, local, uh, locally focused. Uh, then we have uh, Heather Conley, who is senior vice president for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic and the director of the Europe program at CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies. Uh, then next to Heather, we have Mr. Hans Timmer, who's the Chief Economist for Europe and Central Asia at the World Bank. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have Sally Painter, who's a Senior Advisor right here at the Atlantic Council and is the Co-Founder and COO of Blue Star Strategies. So um, to pick up some of the themes that we, we heard in the, the first panel in the morning, um, I, it appears that there, there, there's some common agreement that what we're dealing with in the region is, is far from just an issue of culture or just an issue of identity, as, as Jeff Gedman mentioned. Uh, and it's also far from just an economic issue. We have a complex intersection of many different trends and unpacking what's going on and then trying to articulate and, and devise some strategies that could be used to counter these trends, I think is going to require the, the collective brain power of, of everyone in this room and, and in fact across uh, the transatlantic uh, community. And I think it's particularly uh, fitting that we're doing this session now in DC so close to uh, the elections. Well, obviously, we're going to have a new administration coming in in January. And uh, I think it's our hope that some of the ideas that come out of this discussion could help inform the decision that policymakers, uh, you know, the policymakers make moving forward. Um, so I would like to, um, for those of you, you know, you're, uh, we've got some Europeans here, but for those of you who are familiar with our, our American football, um, you know, sometimes you have to kind of call an audible. So uh, I'm going to call an audible. A lot of a lot of interesting things came out during the first two sessions this morning. So I'm I've I've had to be scribbling notes and sort of changing up changing up my uh, my presentation a little bit as we go. Um, 
So let me, let me kick things off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a, a general question to all the panelists, and then we'll go down the line and, and give folks a chance to respond. Um, this meeting is not the only one that we're, we're doing now in Washington. There's been a number of similar meetings, including uh, you know, last week right here at the Atlantic Council and other meetings going on in Europe, uh, grappling with some of these issues. Um, and one of the themes that seems to come out as very common is understanding whether what we're seeing in Europe is sort of primarily a, a cultural and social phenomenon of the illiberal turn, or whether it's primarily um, an economic effect, whether uh, what we're looking at is something that's driven by uh, folks who are the, you know, the losers of the transition out of socialism or the losers of globalization, uh, or folks who felt left behind after the, after the economic crisis, and they're now fighting back. And, and these, the election of, of populist governments and xenophobia is sort of the, the effect of an economic downturn. There's a counter-argument that I think has been made quite interestingly that what we're dealing with is primarily sort of a, a, a political, cultural phenomenon that um, uh, you know, people feel sort of disconnected from the EU, they want more national control back, that we're seeing sort of the return of the nation state and that this is primarily an identity-based issue. Um, so I'd like to sort of put that out there. You know, which, which is the primary effect uh, that we're seeing in the region? Um, and you know, help us understand sort of what the, what the causes of this illiberal turn are. Um, and let me maybe start with Sally and move, move down the line. Oh, great. Thank you, Mark, and thank you to our hosts. Um, my perspective is based really upon working in uh, Central Europe for the last 15 years, both working with the governments and also representing dozens of companies that have invested, some successfully, some not so successfully. So is it ethnic identity or economics? Um, I think it's really both, um, but the economic angle is truly making the ethnic challenges worse. Well, when the economy's good and people have jobs, they're not usually afraid or insecure uh, with their neighbors. Um, but I think there are some legitimate economic concerns that the European public has expressed, and I don't think we can rely on uh, popular referendums to solve these complex problems, whether it's a lack of growth or Brexit or the refugees crisis. I think it's very important for the politicians and the leaders to acknowledge that the frustration is genuine. Um, and in particular, some of the new EU members um, feel very resentful that the EU um, is putting on private sector constraints to their businesses. Um, and there's a real impression that when they did their negotiations with the EU to join, uh, the older members benefited. I think much of the problem can really be traced back to the 2008 financial crisis, uh, and the banks that created the problems have come back completely. Um, but the common worker in these areas, uh, regions have not. Unemployment in Hungary is 7.5%, and in Latvia it's 9.8%, and I'd like to talk a little bit about um, those two countries. And the poverty indications are, are even higher. I think the weak statistics um, are further exacerbated by the typical worker's view that joining the EU hasn't helped them. Uh, as we know, EU solutions don't happen quickly, and they don't necessarily appear directly to that common citizen. And in fact, I think the politicians who've accepted this aid have done a very poor job of explaining what the benefits are. 
So I want to give you two examples um, to start, both in Latvia. Um, the two key industries in Latvia prior to joining the EU were fish processing and sugar production. Um, when they joined the EU, the fish processors had to respond to over 2,000 regulations. Um, it was a very big expense. The EU didn't put enough money in, and they even were asking for additional time, which the EU didn't give them. So 18 months later, the fish processing industry is almost gone. Uh, over hundreds of jobs lost. Um, people are not getting any compensation, per se. Their social uh, safety net has gone away, um, and they've lost what they thought was a very important industry. Um, with this integration, the regulations that they had to make had to suit uh, EU and the West. It was further uh, a further problem because all of their sales were going to the East. And with the Russian sanctions, Latvia has really taken it on the nose. One other area, and then I'll, I'll stop, is in the sugar industry. Um, it was probably one of their most uh, famous and they were most proud of as well. Um, they do a lot of candy making in, in Latvia. Um, but it, to basically integrate with the EU, they agreed to close down the two facilities that they had. Um, the market reforms required it. Uh, thousands of employees were laid off. They were considered redundant. But in response, they were told that they would get um, some excellent compensation and other invest uh, investment would come in. Unfortunately, uh, the jobs were lost, over 1,000. You can imagine of a country of 2 million people, that was a pretty big deal. The social guarantees were not given. They lost their social safety net. Uh, and the compensation was lower than they expected. There's actually a lawsuit with the trade union now um, that should be litigated soon. But even more crazily, in the last year, a Scandinavian sugar company has gone into uh, Latvia and is now selling Latvian, uh, Latvian sugar. So um, there was a lot of good things that came out of the EU, but a typical Latvian knows those two stories. Um, they got no relief. In fact, they were hurt. So being in the club for them was a, was a real disappointment. So balancing what the EU does and doesn't do, but, but people are out there and they're hurting. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let, let me turn to you now, Hans. We had a very interesting discussion uh, in preparing for today's panel um, about some of these issues and, and touching on issues of, of income disparity and inequality that have arisen as part of the transition. Maybe you could pick up on some of the themes that Sally's opened. Yeah. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. I have the feeling, listening to Sally, that this will be a panel where we agree a lot. Uh, because you, your question was, is it anxiety because of economic hardship? Or is it the threatened uh, cultural or, or religious identity in the, in the region? Uh, and the answer, for me, indeed, is both. I think what we are seeing at the moment in uh, uh, in the region is three phenomena. One is anxiety because of economic hardship. The other one is threatened identities. And then the third phenomenon is that you have authoritarian uh, populist uh, politicians. And I think that is a system that feeds upon itself, uh, that uh, there's circular uh, uh, 
causality. Uh, one actually triggers uh, the other. Uh, and uh, under certain circumstances, such a system can reach a critical mass that it really changes uh, society. Uh, and I think the circumstances that lead to that is that there is a big change in society, in the economy, and an inability of governments, but also of people and society to adjust to that change. And so there are several uh, changes going on in, uh, in the region. Uh, a very important one is that economies have to find a new source of growth. Uh, the, the growth model that we saw before the 2008 crisis is no longer working. Uh, it is very much true when you go to the east of the region, the growth model that was driven by high commodity prices is no longer working, so you have to, uh, to find a new source of growth. Uh, what you're seeing is the impact of technological uh, developments, uh, the digital uh, economy, the sharing e economy, it, it dramatically changes uh, uh, labor markets and what you are seeing is uh, a changing international division uh, of labor. To, to give you one example of, uh, of the labor market, uh, not everybody realizes that in the European Union, employment uh, at the moment is really back to where it was before the crisis. The employment rate is significantly higher than uh, before uh, the crisis. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the crisis has been overcome but all the additional employment is in the form of part-time employment or in the form of, uh, of temporary employment. Full-time, uh, long-term employment is no longer growing and that has a lot to do with, uh, with the changes in technology, the changes in the, in the business sector, what we are seeing. It's especially strong when you look at uh, Poland. Uh, where that part-time and temporary employment uh, has increased a lot as share of total employment and many people would argue that was one of the reasons why we saw a change in the, uh, in the cabinet, uh, change in the vote uh, during the, uh, the elections. So, to conclude, it's, it's, it's not one thing or the other. Uh, you, you can have a charismatic uh, authoritarian leader who actually triggers more anxiety in society or it can be the other way around that you have a real problem in society and there is a demand for for more populist uh, leaders but I, I think the real thing is the uh, the inability to uh, to adopt to the big changes that are happening and that are coming uh, for that you need much more a forward-looking view many politicians are looking backward uh, many institutions are looking backward we are solving the problems of the past we are not really thinking of how to to change basically the social contract in society because that is needed the old social contract is not working thank you very much actually those many of those uh, I think uh, themes were also echoed in in some of the comments that were made this morning about um, the, the changing sort of nature of work the changing nature of employment um, and I think it's also important to sort of understand the ways in which work and employment also help to shape our identities and our understandings of who we are. And I think um, you know, those things are, are very much uh, 
under threat. And, I, and I, I like the way that you spell out that these changes are not just happening now, but they're, they're coming. They're going to be intensified and that we need new ways of grappling with them. Um, I also appreciate that you, you mentioned uh, employment issues in Poland because I think Poland is sometimes held up as sort of this curious case. You know, why is it that the Polish economy is performing well, yet we've seen this resurgence of populism and nationalism in Poland? It doesn't seem to fit the model of some of the other countries. So I think your, your point about temporary employment is very well taken. Um, Heather, let me turn to you on the same topic, and, and you know, what, what, what could you add from, from, uh, from your point of view on this? Well, I think it, you're exactly right, Hans. We're going to all viciously agree with each other. So, Andras, you have to... You have to be the contrarian of this group when we when we get this question to you. I can't, I do not. Oh, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. So I'm going to build on um, Sally's. It is both economics and politics. It is the interaction of those two forces. And I think in some ways what we're looking at, the struggle of how democracies deal with the great disruption of the economic phenomenon. Um, because it seems to me the more we are economically um, disturbed, and you mentioned the shared economy, uh, globalization, there are so many positives to globalization and the opportunities for those who've been able to seize those opportunities. Marine Le Pen calls those the, the globalists. So we'll put ourselves in that room, we're the globalists. Versus the patriots, versus the nationalists. And this is where I think the economic dislocation exacerbates the political alienation. And this is where we get into the antibodies of globalization, the rejection. This is, these are the antis. They can be anti-Europe, anti-American, anti-global, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-anti-anti. We're against. Because those are the forces are bringing the change to us, the dislocation of the sugar factory. And the way of life that we had, that we assumed that our children would have, that has been upended. It has been disturbed, and we want to know who is responsible for that great disruption. So that's the, the cycle of the politics and the economics. So what is the best system to handle? this great disruption. That's what's sort of before us. So you have, a, you have democracy. Well, right now, since the global financial crisis, democracies don't look like they're really well equipped to handle this. We have the, the corruption of the financial sector um, and the political paralysis that we see here and in other places. So democracies are struggling with this. Well, let's go to an authoritarian, a liberal model. Now that's more control, take control, right, over all of these disruption uh, and, and this chaos. And we'll close those borders and we'll restrict media freedom and we'll change the judicial processes and I'm going to take control. Now that may not help with the economic health of that country, but that's taking control. That's a different model. And I think that's what democracies in the West don't understand. We have an alternative. There's alternative out there and it's seducing leaders who are very worried about the antis growing popular in their countries and dislodging them. That's why the center left and the center right in both the United States and Europe is struggling because they sound and feel inequipped, ill-equipped to handle what's been going on. And for the last 20 years, they have brought us this chaos. Thank you very much. And they've told us it was good for us. Didn't feel very good to us if you've been having your job changed around. So what I think, so two, two final comments, what, what I find is fascinating 
uh, is how you shape a national identity out of all of this. So what do we believe in or do we be believe in nothing? Do we pull from our glorious past? That's what feels better. We know that. And we know we were great then. Whether that was, uh, you know, pre-Trianon, pre-Lausanne Treaty, if you're Turkey, if that's going back to the great patriotic war. So how do we pull that identity of what is great? But does that equip us to, to handle the great disruption that we're in today? And I, I find that, to be honest with you, from, a, from an international relations standpoint, a fascinating subject. What is missing in all of this, no one is articulating a positive vision for how we seize the opportunity of the great disruption and how we minimize those who have been left behind. No one's doing that. We either going to their fears, you're right, this all is terrible and we're gonna blow it up and take control of it or fix it. No one is advocating for the positive and a positive vision. And, and my fear is in that absence, we are getting the illiberal, the fear because that's what people want to hear. It's just not going to solve their problem. Can you be the contrarian now? Uh, I'm so sorry, but I really cannot be a contrarian because I, I, I uh, re really agreed with, with uh, all, all of what you said before. I, I can challenge uh, only the title uh, of our panel, uh, which is about the liberal turn. and. Uh, I think the word illiberal is a bit of a euphuism. Uh, decades ago, this used to be a scholarly word, and I think scholars used to have debates on what it means, and it was about the liberal threshold in a democracy. And then it was used by the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, in 2012 uh, in a village in Trans Transylvania, where uh, the Fidesz party uh, does its yearly gatherings. And it's always a very important uh, ideological show or uh, ideological giving of directions for, for the near future. So we use this word there. And uh, uh, I, I think basi basically it has something to do with liberalism, but it has more to do with democracy. I think an illiberal state would be a US state with a death penalty. Uh, but uh, it, the states which, which you call illiberal in Eastern Europe, or you, you, you could mention Turkey, they, they have simply less democracy, uh, worse democracy, uh, a lower quality democracy. Um, whether um, economy or politics has uh, a primary role in this, I think this is, in many cases, like you said, a chicken and the egg, egg problem. However, in some, some instances of history, one or the other might play a stronger role. And just walking here, I, I had an inter interesting conversation with Mark. And I, I asked him if he could give me one single example where the economy was good, but you had an illiberal turn. And he said, Poland. I said, you're right. Then he said, Britain, uh, I, I was half convinced. But, but there was Turkey as a huge example. Uh, I mean, the Tur Turkish economy went, went very well. And, and, and you have the biggest illiberal 
authoritarian turn in Turkey. Um, and I was thinking about in, in, in what times uh, turns like this, this happen. So the, the, this is uh, speculation yet. But I, I think if you have a new democratic process in the region, in the country, and suddenly there is a force which used to be historically important, uh, but didn't get a voice in democracy, then suddenly finds a way with a vengeance. Then you have this kind of illiberal turn, like in Turkey, like in Poland. Uh, the, the other uh, development is pretty easy. I mean, almost every economic downturn, like in the 30s in Germany, uh, bring, brings uh, very many tensions. And then, then people start to cry for a strong hand. Uh, I think what counts in the long term is, is ba basically level of trust. And the level of trust ba basically gives you the level of democracy, uh, what, what, a, what a society can have. Uh, that, that's a long term and, and very slowly changing uh, thing. And uh, if, if you lack trust, uh, then, then you have short term solutions because you don't believe that the future will be there or not, not in a way you, you'd like it to be. So, so you direct yourself to shorter term solutions. And the, if you have shorter term solutions, then, then you have uh, more unpleasant things like uh, bureaucracy, kleptocracy, uh, and, and uh, cor corruption, and all, all kind of uh, social diseases. Could I try to, to be contrarian? Uh, Please. <laughs> since we want to have some discussion. <laughs> because Heather asked the question, under these circumstances, what is the best system? Should it be democratic or should it be illiberal? I think it's the wrong question. I think that whatever the system is, the challenge at the moment is to adjust. And if you don't adjust, then there will be an enormous shock that, that shakes the fundamentals of that system. Because we see now in the European Union a democratic system that it's being shocked because they cannot handle all the adjustments. But let's look towards the East. The oil exporters, uh, Russia, Azerbaijan, uh, countries in Central Asia, authoritarian uh, regimes, they are being challenged at the moment also. They have to adjust to a shock that's probably even larger. A country like Azerbaijan is losing a quarter of its income because of lower oil prices. That, that requires a fundamental change in the structure of their economy. If that government, if that society cannot deliver, there will be major changes. There, there's an enormous threat of a kind of an Arab Spring at the moment in those countries. So I think we have to be careful thinking that there is one optimal system that can handle everything. I think whatever the system is, there is an enormous challenge at, at the moment. In the same way we are talking about policies often, there's not a set of optimal policies. Uh, if you look at a, a country like China, it's doing very well, but not necessarily because it has the best policies in the world. But what we always observe is a country is successful if it can adjust. And China is then a good example because I, I worked uh, together with the Chinese government five years ago on their new strategy. It was a country that was growing 30 years, 10% a year, 
and they wanted to fundamentally change many of their policies because they realized that what was good enough for the past is no guarantee for future success and, and the circumstances are changing. And so whatever the system is, whatever the values are that you have, there's an enormous challenge that within your system you have to adjust. Well, and can I, I absolutely mean, I think that Andras and you have the, 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 the secret here in the adjustment is the trust. And, and that's my concern in democracies, and I, the, the rhetorical question, of course I believe that democracies, although our, despite our many, many flaws, we're always the most durable system. We just don't do so well in the short term, but more, we're so durable in, in the long term. But it's the lack of trust, to Andre's point, that concerns me. And this is what's, I, I think, a little different. Uh, and right now in the European context, the American context, versus um, uh, those that uh, have a very different system, is that there is a breakdown of trust between the governed and the people for a variety of issues. There's alienation, there's dislocation, and, and this is where what I think is that the most difficulties of, of the illiberalism is, is that's not the great term. That what we're seeing in authoritarian behavior is control of the media. Why? Well, some of that is to control uh, stories that we don't want to come out, to focus people on the, on the story um, that we do. But if we don't have trust at the heart of this between the, the government and the leadership and the elite and the people, there's going to be problems with adjustment. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here today. How do you rebuild that trust? How does it become a positive for that? Um, and, and this is where this sort of this great disruption, and never has there been so much access to information and noise and so little direction and, and guidance about where we should be going. That's, I think, a great challenge for all of us. But I, I agree with you. How do you adjust? But because, you have to have trust to adjust. Well, well, but once you adjust, you will build the trust. Yeah? Depends if there are winners or losers in that adjustment process. What we okay, we've already started. Mark, I don't want to stop monopolize us. Organize you. us, no, discipline I, us. We're I, started I, already. I, you know, it's it's hard to stop a fascinating conversation. But let me let me pull something out of out of what you both just said. Um, this issue of trust and adjustment is a very interesting one. What happens to? I mean, we've seen, for example, downgrading in the ratings of Poland. Uh, you know, tied to rule of law issues. The uh, Turkey had a ratings downgrade. What happens, and, and you know, you mentioned some of the struggles of the, the economies that are dependent on natural resources. What happens when the illiberal regimes fail to deliver for their people? In other words, we've seen uh, challenges when democracies fail to deliver, populations turn towards illiberalism. What happens when those illiberal regimes uh, fail to deliver? Will we see something worse emerging, or will the pendulum shift back in favor of, as you said, perhaps a proliferation of new Arab Springs? Let me put that out to sort of everyone, whoever wants to jump in. Maybe I jump in. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a couple things going on here, and I'll respond to your question. But part of this issue is that we sold democracy as the greatest thing that would ever happen. And democracy is ugly, and for economic development to be successful, it takes time. You know, you, you raised Poland. Uh, was Poland making mistakes? Poland was doing better than anybody. Um, they were still growing. They, unlike many other countries, did not have the oligarch class grow. Um, they privatized under Balcerowicz. So they had it pretty good. But the challenge was that the leadership did not invest in 
job training and the social safety net. And when people started, to, again, to worry, it wasn't there. So they say, let's, let's move on and get somebody else. Um, I think it gets back to leadership. Uh, leadership, good leaders under crisis adapt, and they come up with programs. After the 2009 crisis, the Germans, they did job training, job sharing. They focused on exports. Others chose to blame. I'll go back to Orban. In, in, uh, in Hungary, Orban decided in the crisis, we're going to tax the heck out of the foreign investors. We're going to tax the banks. We're going to destroy the private sector energy companies that are there. So what did they do? There's no more private sector energy in Hungary. At one point, 30% of the domestic supply was being uh, developed um, domestically. Uh, so they would become even more um, independent from Russia. So these uh, investors pull out. And to your point, the only way these countries are going to grow is once we attract new investors, because the old ways are not working. Um, leaders have choices. And good leaders will make good choices. Uh, and they'll take their country on the long-term uh, long road. Well, actually, you raised the point of, of Hungary and, and the energy sector. And I think that's actually an interesting place to uh, mention that uh, some friends of, of SIPES, the, the Center for the Study of Democracy, which is a think tank in Sofia, have been working very closely uh, with Heather and her team at CSIS to put out a report that I understand you launched today that looks at, among other things, what happens when domestic energy uh, production declines and, um, for example, the Russians move in? Um, and you know, I wanted to maybe kind of uh, turn to you and, and, and pick up maybe some of the points that Sally was, was raising um, you know, as, as some of these domestic economies have, have not come out of the crisis so successfully. You've seen a lot of uh, influx of foreign investment, not necessarily of what we might say the most desirable kind. So maybe right. maybe you could touch on sure. that. Sure. Well, a I'll bit. do this extremely uh, quickly. The the report, which is pretty long, 63 pages, is up on our, our website. But the the real 30 second um, review. We wanted to see if there was a correlation between Russia's economic footprint in five Central European countries and a correlation to a decline in their, dem their, their governance standards, their democratic institutions. And we focused on media freedom, uh, judicial reform, uh, anti-corruption efforts. Uh, so the bottom line, we did not find a direct correlation. Those conclusions, they were just inconclusive. But, but what we did find, and really the, the, the gist of the report, is that we found a methodology, what we call the Kremlin playbook. And so, and it works uniquely in each country, and that's why we decided to do case study analysis because you can make broad trends, but they, they don't really tell you how it works in the country. So our conclusion was that anything above 12% of GDP that represents Russia's economic footprint, and, and we, we focused a great deal on methodology. So uh, our colleagues at CSD did some incredible number crunching on corporate sector, FDI, the whole thing. And, and it's designed in some ways not to be seen as it is. A lot of problems with beneficiary ownership and all of that stuff. We did our best. Uh, but it, it looked at if there was over 12% of GDP, it was going to lead more likely to what we call economic capture. And, and where Russian economic footprint is the greatest, no shock to anyone in this room, is in the strategic sectors. Energy, the financial sector, media, 
transportation and infrastructure and real estate. And so we describe what we call the unvirtuous circle of Russian influence. It can enter economically uh, through the strategic sectors. And then what it does, we sort of liken it to a virus. It begins to infect uh, local affiliates and networks. Um, and that economic influence then translates into uh, political influence. So it's political party financing, it's, the, it's NGOs that are created that we didn't know they were created. Um, it's sympathetic party leaders. And some of these there are natural sympathies, so they were pushing an open door. Some of it was invested. The political influence then creates more opportunities to enlarge the economic influence. Uh, it reduces abilities uh, to investigate corruption. It minimizes investigative journalism. And then the economics grow, and then there's more distributive wealth for enriching the political uh, uh, part of it. So we call it the circle, and the transmission mechanism is corruption. It can get to a point where we call it a state capture, meaning that country has greater difficulty making an independent decision for itself uh, if it goes against either econ Russia's economic interests or if it doesn't support uh, Russia's interest on, on policy. And so Bulgaria is clearly the sort of the, the, uh, the most stark example where you have over 22% per, of Bulgarian GDP is Russia's economic footprint and where we explain in a, in a case study analysis where we've seen this uh, and, and virtuous circle work. It hasn't worked as well in Latvia. Uh, Latvia has over 12% of GDP, so if you were looking at our conclusion, you say, well, there's greater influence. They've, they've fought a bit more, they've been more resilient to the influence, and that is because they have an independent anti-corruption uh, office. They have judicial, they, they, they purposefully did some judicial uh, reforms that have, have paid off. They did them earlier. But look, it's, this is a daily resistance. I mean, corruption is all in all of our societies. This is not pointing a finger uh, because the four fingers are pointing back at ourselves. But it's how you deal with it and if this corruption and in this influence has a broader purpose. And that's what our report suggests. And uh, it's certainly room for conversation. But um, so we think, and it's sort of getting back to my original point, in all of this swirl of disruption, we're all feeling this and, and, and struggling with adjusting to it. When you have an adversarial actor that is using the weakness and exploiting this for purpose, it can almost have a more outsized impact because that's where the information space gets to be so important. And we really saw uh, the last several years, Russian economic footprint just grew like crazy in the media sector in all five of these countries. That's controlling message. That's making these governments respond to stories that are patently false. But if it takes two days to put down a false story that NATO is going to have forces in your country, that's two days less that that country can have in reforming itself or adjusting to economic growth. And that's the reality of it. So enjoy the Kremlin playbook. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I know that we'll all look forward to, to taking a look at that. Let me actually, now that we're touching on sort of the confluence of the media space and corruption, that really is in, in your wheelhouse, Andras. Um, and let me ask you a question, and, and maybe then, you know, if other, others want to jump in. Um, you know, clearly a lot of uh, time and energy and investment went into uh, 
trying to fight corruption in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, there was a lot of investment uh, by you know, EU and US funded programs. Uh, yet we still have this sort of narrative of the incomplete transition and the persistence of corruption, which is something that we've talked about. So you know, how, how does that play out in particular in Hungary? And, and what are some of the reasons, uh, the reasons why, uh, why these challenges have persisted? You know, after a decision was made at some point that, you know, yes, these countries have graduated, they're in the EU now, what, what, what did we get wrong? Mm -hmm. uh, as we men mentioned in the last panel, uh, there is media freedom in Hungary. You, you could write about everything. Uh, there is no censorship, but censorship now is not the essence. And the, even media f uh, freedom is a uh, bit uh, restricted. Uh, there, there's a chilling effect of many regulations. But what mainly distorts the media landscape is uh, ba basically, I think, ownership. Uh, and uh, by, by now, the landscape is, is uh, very interesting in a way. Uh, the a big part belong, belongs to friends of the government. Not, not the government uh, directly, but friends of the government. And that has something to do with the system of economic cooperation. S a system of economic cooperation uh, is an economy within the economy in Hungary. And it contains the, the uh, you, you, you can say the friends of Fidesz uh, who for whom everything is easier uh, during their economic activities. And uh, a big part of the media is, is in this system of economic cooperation. It's, it's very important. Now, Hungary is a country where, um, sadly, uh, more than 80% of the people get their information exclusively, not mostly, exclusively from TV stations and the quality of TV stations is not very good. Now, uh, the biggest TV stations, one of them is uh, absolutely pro-government, uh, owned by a close friend of the government who even got credits from the government to buy this television. Uh, the other one belongs to a German company, uh, which for a while seemed to be uh, very aggressively anti-government and then an informal behind the scenes uh, deal was probably made up between them and the government and now, now they're milder. Um, the print media is uh, um, a, a big part of it pro-government again. There, there is one very interesting part of it because uh, Orban used to have a close friend with, with uh, whom he went to college together, uh, Lajos Simicka. Uh, he, he was the one who built up the economic empire between Fidesz, which is now the governing party. He, he was a pretty strong man, but a, as soon as Orban could rely on the uh, relatively vast uh, tax incomes, he tried to uh, minimize the huge power of Shimichka, and there, there was an ever stronger strife between the two. And one, one day it came to a breakup. Uh, so the close, two close friends are now enemies. And the part of the print media is in Shimichka's hand. 
uh, which ma makes it very interesting because uh, Simicka is uh, a nationalist, uh, but one of the reasons uh, he had a strife with uh, Orban was about the Russian influence. He's very much anti-Russian. And now there is talk about that uh, Simicka uh, and Jobbik uh, might cooperate. Jobbik uh, is, is the uh, radical right party in Hungary, which is the third strongest force in the parliament. And then there are internet publications uh, which don't have that reach, uh, and that, that is basically free. Um, and as, as with um, quite, quite a lot of media outlets, uh, with, with the most important media, uh, uh, internet outlets, you, you sometimes don't know whom it belongs to. Mm -hmm. um, that's a catchy question. And you might have heard about the story with Nape Sabacag, which used to be the biggest daily of Hungary for a long time. It was a communist daily. Then it was part, part owned by the Socialist Party, so it was a socialist daily. Uh, then uh, uh, a very, very enigmatic guy from Vienna uh, bought it, and they, everyone thought that he was a middleman only be, behind the deal, which it, it's turning out that he was. Uh, he's now recently, he, he, he's now selling it, but, but before selling it, he closes down Nebsabacag. And on the surfaces, this, this is a market story, because Nebsabacag lost uh, some uh, three quarters of the readers in recent years, and ma made huge losses. So, yeah, you should you should perish if you don't profit. Uh, why, why, why? What would be the reason to leave on? But the market uh, is mostly created by the government, and it has a brand value, and probably because the government uh, really didn't want to uh, take over Nebsabacha, because I, I, I think the calculation was that okay. Um, too obvious. <laughs> no, even if we get this, this readership, what, what to do with it? Because this readership uh, would never convert to our views. They are old, they are ex-communist, uh, so, so uh, it's no reason to have them. And probably uh, to avoid this controversy about taking over Nebsabacha, which would be ironical, uh, they asked the previous owner to shut it down. And the story is going on. Uh, I, uh, Don, I was just reading my Facebook messages and, and it seemed to be that uh, New York Times gave some pages to Nebsobacek. So the Hungarian Nebsobacek authors and editors were producing something in Hungarian under the domain of New York Times. Mm. That's the newest. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Well, let me um, let me take, but let me go back to the point that Heather was making about um, you know about the corruption issues that you raised, and and let me go back to that question also of sort of the persistence of corruption and and the sort of incomplete nature of transitions, and and maybe let me put that first to Hans and then to you, Sally. Could you could you jump in on that topic? Yeah. So when. When we talk about corruption or state capture, then that problem is probably biggest in Central Asia. 
where you have a complete, incomplete uh, transition because basically the system hasn't changed for, for 25 years. And I think there is a positive story to be told there at the moment. Uh, they say never waste a good crisis. But that really applies here at the moment because what we are seeing when we are interacting with governments in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Azerbaijan, there is a lot more willingness now to start working on reforms that they were never interested in. And, and that includes uh, state-owned enterprise reforms, it includes addressing the, uh, uh, the oligarchs, it includes addressing uh, corruption. And why? Uh, at the moment, they can't afford the losses of the state-owned enterprises. Uh, at the moment, they need very different kind of jobs uh, than they had when the commodity prices uh, were high. And the oligarchs, they can't deliver uh, uh, these kind of jobs. Uh, and they feel the pressure of, uh, of social tension uh, coming. So they, they do want to uh, address there. And I, I think it is important to use this, this window uh, of opportunity to work with them to start addressing these, uh, these problems only if you can make clear that they will never be successful if they are not, uh, if they are not reforming. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I think there is a, a positive side to this when you look at the countries that are really dominated by, by state capture. Can I just follow up on the discussion we had earlier on, on Poland? Uh, because it's not completely black and white. So the new government in Poland has a very ambitious program. They want to support Polish companies to become uh, international champions. Uh, and they, uh, they put a lot of emphasis on uh, what they call a better uh, social protection system with a lot of emphasis on, uh, uh, on lagging regions. And those elements are actually not strange. Because if you look at where Poland was, it was a country that had been very successful, but basically by becoming a supplier into the German industry. And there were very little global brands. And we know that if you really want to become a, a higher high-income country than they are at the moment, then uh, you can't <coughs> rely on... Uh, just foreign direct investment. You have to develop your own brands and you, you have to become global. That's a way of capturing that higher value added part of the value added uh, chain. Uh, it is also true that uh, the, the social protection system probably didn't function well anymore in this very new, uh, new economy, uh, rethinking the social contract. So that made a lot of sense. The big problem is that the new government combines that uh, or approaches this from a very specific ideological angle. Uh, and they combine that with the idea of Poland for the Poles and uh, inward looking and, uh, uh, and, and turning back to an old situation in terms of uh, retirement age and, and things like that. But it's not black and white, because I, I think you can argue that uh, it was a failure of the previous government 
that was basically satisfied and said, oh, we have reformed a lot, adjusted to the rules of the European Union, we had an economy that was growing very, uh, very fast, integrating into, uh, into the German economy, but not looking ahead, not trying to solve the problems that were coming, basically being satisfied. And then you shouldn't be surprised that there is an alternative coming that tries to solve these problems that the people themselves are actually realizing. But okay. No, thank you. No, thank you very much for adding that element of nuance. I think this is something that Sally thinks about a lot. So, so maybe you could jump in. We talked about this yeah, earlier. Just briefly, I mean, the biggest challenge, and I agree with your assessment of Poland, the uh, safety net was not invested in. Healthcare in Poland is the worst in all of the EU. Um, it's a disaster. But the challenge is, you cannot create an industry overnight. And what they need is innovation. And innovation right now has to come from the outside, teaming with local players. But when we talk about corruption, 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 and we talk and vilify these countries, if you're going to go into a new country and you're going to do foreign direct investment and team, you want to feel that it's safety. And if all we say is this is terribly corrupt, who's going to go into it? And so I think we have to balance by saying there's this terrible corruption and recognizing that it's gray. There are companies that are better than others, and we need to work together, and the Polish government and these other Central European governments need to create incentives in a transparent way that will bring that innovation in. You know, Orban said they're going to create their own energy sector. Well, that's going to take 20 years. They just don't, they don't have the money, nor do they have the technology, but they need it, and companies want to go in. So I, it's a balance between vilifying, uh, embracing the best you can, um, and working together to build out those economies. Well, let me, let me um, maybe ask, ask one more question, and then we'll, we'll turn it out um, you know, to get some questions from the audience. Um, you know, you know, Hans raises this very interesting notion of uh, economies in, in Central Asia and, and economies that are less free going through an interesting moment of their own struggle now. So, um, you know, moving forward, maybe what would be some of the lessons learned from the, the struggles that we're seeing in Central and Eastern Europe now? Uh, that could be applied to countries in Central Asia or, you know, perhaps Ukraine, Moldova, um, to maybe, you know, try to go through this process without repeating some of the mistakes that have gotten us to where we are in Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, maybe tie into that, um, what are some of the, the strategies from an economic point of view that we could, um, you know, encourage that perhaps a new U.S. administration could work with our European partners on putting into place going forward to try to you know, fix some of the malaise that's, that's the economic malaise in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Let me, I mean, that's a very broad question, but let, let me maybe uh, brief answers sort of down the line from the panel mm -hmm. and then we'll open it up for questions. Yeah, the first moments after the change from uh, communism to democracy in Eastern Europe uh, was privatization, and privatization in very many cases uh, brought uh, big injustices. Like uh, in the level playing field, if you're the weaks and the strong ones are coming, then the strong ones are going to overrun you. So one, one very important thing is that we shouldn't 
be the servants of, a, of the strong ones to be able to buy the regulations in our country, but, but to cooperate them in a way that, that uh, growth is equitable, uh, which is obviously, uh, which obviously can happen in a way when corruption is minimal. And I, I think corruption is a very important uh, thing. So um, uh, I think even now most people underestimate the uh, amount of money which flows out of these countries via corruption. Some, sometimes out of the country, sometimes just, just to private pockets. The third thing which is extremely important that uh, sudden huge turnarounds in the economic system are no good. In, uh, Hungary is a good example for, uh, I, I think if you see the political pendulum uh, from left to right, from uh, <coughs> right, right to left, the pendulum in, in, instead of uh, ca coming to still stand in the end, it's uh, go, going ever wider. So the leftist government uh, <coughs> were busy with, with correcting what the rightist governments uh, did, did wrong, according to them at least, and vice versa. The right, rightist governments uh, in their first years were busy with annulating everything what the leftist governments did. Mm. And, and that, that's wrong. That, that's, that simply uh, uh, annulates the, the efforts of a country uh, in, in the long run. And in this respect, again, trust is extremely important. And the sad fact is that you, you can build trust only in a very slow and cumbersome way, but can lose it very quickly. So it has to be trust building, which is much work. Heather, would you? So I'm going to be the disobedient panelist and uh, not do lessons, but uh, think about this as the great experiment. So I, and, or we should perhaps Hans, uh, the great adjustment in some ways. So we have a lot, we are watching a couple of models unfold on how to deal with uh, the political and economic dynamics of the great disruption. We have the American model, which is sort of that destructive capitalism, but the innovation of IT um, and now an energy revolution with shale, but you know, obviously unleashing political forces here that are uh, not adjusting uh, to that model. We have the European Union model, a, a supranational model uh, of, of regulatory technocratic processes. Uh, and that's the best way as a, as a larger 500, well, as my British friends say, 500 million minus 65 million in the next two years. But, you know, a $500 million block that is a, an economic and trading powerhouse together but are struggling with how to move that project forward. In some ways, Central Europe is, in some, I think this is the Hungarian case in particular, they're trying a hybrid model. They're trying a little bit of this, a little bit of that. How can I manage and adjust? You have Russia as a certainly a, a model uh, of, of how one can move through without reforming, without modernizing, but maintaining control. China is also a, a, a unique model. So in some ways, this is for all for you know all of us as we look at these issues and our experts to keep our minds open that this is experimentation going on here bits and pieces will be successful or not successful but to Sally's point sort of we've lost the this is the best system for you no matter what well right now we have to defend that if that's the best system and improve it 
or understand that uh, there's some experimentation going on and how those experiments work or not work will be instructive into how other countries seek adjustment. Mm. Hans can disagree with me viciously on that <laughs> point. But that's my lessons learned the future. So, so let me say what the World Bank approach is, and then that might be uh, a good approach for the next U.S. administration also, I don't know. The, the, the World Bank is deliberately a non-political uh, organization, and so our approach is always uh, to stay engaged in countries, to find common ground, and then together uh, try to move societies in what we see as, as the right direction. So that, that is one. The second thing that we are doing at the moment is conveying the message that this is a very dire situation. We always say that complacency is not good, but seriously, at the moment, complacency can be disastrous. disastrous. And just, just to put it in a very extreme way, it's still possible that there will be an enormous crisis in the European Union. It's possible as a fallout of the Brexit and that the system for which there's hardly an alternative actually collapses. It is still possible that there will be Arab Springs which could become very violent in, uh, in Central Asia. So this is uh, a very dire situation, and, and we discussed that uh, with our client uh, countries. And, and thirdly, we try to come up with longer-term visions for countries on how you could address that new economy, all these changes that we have talked about, just to try to, to move the discussion from backward-looking to forward-looking. Uh, so stay engaged. Take the situation serious and be forward-looking. And it, it, it might be advice for the new U.S. administration. It's just good advice so for we, everybody. <laughs> so we started a little bit late after lunch, but and I do want to give Sally a chance to say some final words, but I want to open it up for at least a couple of questions from the audience, if that's all right. I, I, I know we're struggling to kind of catch up with time after, after a lunch start. But let's maybe take a question here, and then I'll, I'll come back to you. Hi, uh, my name is Dmitry Pribrzhensky. Thank you. Very interesting discussion. I have two questions. First one is a quick one. Uh, is how do you, to Mr. Uh, Timmer, how do you explain on a kind of a more micro level the shift to uh, part-time and temporary employment? And the next question is maybe a little less easier. Uh, it's So I think a major tool of a lot of populist and right-wing politicians is to touch on the theme of black and white. They like to paint things black and white anti-global uh, or globalist versus nationalist and I've heard a lot of that here today for example pro-EU anti-Russia where there's really not a gray zone and I think in America it's liberal or conservative whereas there's a lot of people in the middle for example in the EU you can be for the EU but against open borders so I think maybe this cuts back to your adjustment policy so my question is who's Jo who c can articulate these gray areas if it's not the politicians? And maybe, uh, more specifically, with the World Bank, IMF, United Nations, maybe they can provide information or policy prescriptions that are more gray that politicians possibly can't use. Thank you. Thank you. Hans? Um, I'm thinking about the second one, and I've forgotten the first question that you... Short-term uh, labor. Short-term uh, uh, part-time yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Um, Contracts. 
there is this interesting, well-written book on the U.S. economy. I think it's called The Vanishing U.S. Corporation, explaining that over the last 10 years, half of the public corporations, the number of publications has been reduced by half. And while 100 years ago, when they started, these U.S. corporations had 800,000 employees were very, very big. And now you have the Googles, the Facebooks, they have 2,000 employees but basically they're platforms and they're working with, with partners. And, and that is not something that is just happening in the US, it's happening all over the world. So it is technology, the digital uh, economy, that provides uh, a lot of opportunities for individuals to start firms, for consumers. They have that consequence that it's very unlikely that the, the younger generation will have lifelong employment in big cor corporations. That, that's no longer uh, what is happening. And that translates itself in temporary employment and part-time employment. And the, the, the Uber versus the, the, the cab drivers, but you see it all over the, the, the place. So the new employment that is being created has that kind of uh, characteristic. Uh, that, that's my structural explanation of, of what is uh, what is happening maybe um, and maybe just to take some more questions and, and you can follow up with Hans on your second question you can okay. catch him after the panel just to get some more voices in uh, there's a, a how about Jill over in the front and then we'll go to the back Hi, uh, Jill Doherty with the Wilson Center. You know, as I sit here, I'm thinking of the region that we've been discussing, Central Europe, um, you know, former Soviet Union, let's call it, which raises all of those um, socialism versus capitalism, communism, et cetera, versus capitalism. And I'm wondering, with these very frightening things that you're talking about, in which governments are unwilling, at least liberal democracies, are unwilling to fulfill the needs of their people, what is the, dare I use the word, paradigm or system? Is Does this go way beyond systems at this point? It, it, maybe it's too philosophical, but it strikes me as if we don't have uh, a model for the economies of the future. I'm just interested in... Well, I can just pull that out a little bit. And it's almost reflecting on the, the original question. Of, so who, where is the voice for the middle, the center, I would argue, the rational, that is not... Uh, extreme uh, either way. And that, that space has diminished right now, the political space for that. Uh, and perhaps that is you know, the, the wonderful impacts of a, a globalized media center and social media. We're, we're losing the middle because we're having such extreme conversations. But, but I agree with you, Jill, that we have to be very open to looking at different systems and approaches. This gets back to uh, Hans or, or Andreas talking about, let's take the best of what is working, the vocational training, the alternatives to uh, how to build the skill set to work in the 21st century economy. Uh, let's, let's empower local communities. There's a, there's a, you know, the big is awful, like, you know, the, the people that believe the IMF World Bank, the IFEs are sort of the, the globalists and, you know, they put think tanks in that too, so we're, we're all together. Uh, you know, the, 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 this is you know, thinking that's not right. How do we break this down and help empower the communities to get the benefits 
of the global economy, even though their entire job community was around manufacturing that no longer is, exists in that. How do you pull them up? How do you say, okay, this is it's not going to be coal manufacturing, it's not going to be steel here, it's going to be something new and better. I think that's the part we haven't gone and made the global become local and benefit from that. Because you can be anywhere working on a platform, as long as you've got great broadband, there are infrastructure issues. But how can we start making that part of the positive? Not what we've lost, not bemoaning that it's never coming back. It's, it's being exciting part. But I think that actually, and this is where we think in a top-down approach, where are the governments, where's the policy? I think we have to start thinking the bottom up. How do we empower and enliven local communities to be excited about the opportunities while we're all working collectively to minimize, uh, obviously, the negatives? It, but it's a very different mindset. In some ways, it's a network mindset and how we connect local communities to benefit from this. Hopefully, the, the politics won't get in our way. No, I think, I think that's an extra, actually an excellent point. You know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about this notion of control and uh, you know, people wanting to take control of their countries back and take control of their economies back. And, you know, um, you know Sal, you talked a little bit about sort of the, this notion of burdensome regulation and how that's, um, you know, how that's affected uh, local economies. Um, you know, I, I didn't give, I, I gave everyone sort of the chance for the last word, but maybe you could, you could jump in sure. maybe on picking up on how they're stopping. I know we're out of time, but um, to answer Jill's question, I mean, I think it's back to leadership. And for the next president, my sincere hope is that president engages very, very um, avidly with our Central Europeans and our European uh, partners. 25 years ago, when I was coming up as a young professional, if you did transatlantic relationships and NATO and EU, that was the way things were. That was where you could really get your teeth into policy. And we had NATO enlargement and EU enlargement and OECD. If you're, I'm so glad to see young people in the room today because if you go on the hill or you look around, there are not transatlanticists. When I was talking to some of my young colleagues, they said, well, you got to deal with the Middle East or you got to do China or you do Africa. Nobody's doing the transatlantic. And so I think part of the solution is we need to push our leaders to do better and to lead for the right things. But it's really in the next generation in this room that has to engage because I'm a big transatlanticist. I believe that when we agree, we can solve any of these issues, whether it's North Korea, Iran, Russia, you name it. And we've lost that a little bit. But when we go back to it, I think we all have the same values. Whether you're Russian, Czech, Hungarian, Polish, or United, from the United States, we want to have good jobs, train our children, uh, have a nice life that is doing good things. And, and we're not that different, but we demonize countries and... and, and um, and some of these actions. So I'm a, I'm a huge uh, proponent of the transatlantic relationship and that it's events like this that we need to get more involved with and we need to bring more people in and talk about what we do agree with and how we can solve some of the very thorny issues. Because it's scary. I've, I might have to go and sleep under the bed tonight with what you're saying, so. <laughs> I think we have time maybe for one last question and there was a hand in the back. Um, if you could, we're, yes, please. We're, we're, Pretty short on time. If you could make your question quick, please, and identify yourself. Sure. Uh, Patrick Bell, uh, the Jean Monnet Center for European Excellence at Florida International University. Um, I'm a Ukraine specialist, and one of the underreported stories that I see a lot is there's a great need for investment in Ukraine, and there are a lot of qualified 
people. In particular, there's an unheralded tech sector, especially in Western Ukraine. But when you say Ukraine, most people think, oh my gosh, it's Donbass. It's, you know, what's going on in Crimea. So how do you get organizations, in particular companies, more interested in coming, for example, to a place, you know, like Ukraine? Well, let, let me actually maybe direct that to Sally because that's one it's of the things that you issue. work on. I spend a lot of time in Ukraine. And it goes back to this point. There are great industries in Ukraine. Um, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, it's sort of divided up among different groups. But no one who is sane is going to go into Ukraine without partnering with a local partner. And so we have to stop demonizing everybody. You know, they have good companies that make up many, many jobs. And so it's trying to figure out how we, who we can team with. Because you're right, I, I was talking to an investor today. Um, there's a company, the energy company, that's interested in investment. I said, oh, Ukraine? No, forget it. I said, well, wait a minute. Let's peel that onion back a little bit. So we can't just make it black and white. We can't demonize. And, and I think our US government, you know, we talk about rule of law and transparency. But we can't just talk about it. We have to actually go down, look at these issues, and, and there's a lot of opportunity in Ukraine. So we, we can't just talk about the negativity, but the opportunity. Well, I think that's actually a very fitting uh, thought to, to close on. Um, I know there's a, a lot more that we could cover and a lot more ground that we unfortunately didn't get time to, to, to cover, but I encourage you to reach out to the panelists and, and maybe continue the conversation offline. Please join me in, in thanking an excellent panel. Thank